Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to The Line, the sports podcast from PR Week. Welcome then to number five in the series of The Line podcast from PR Week. I'm Richard Gillis. I've got Danny Rogers here, editor-in-chief of PR Week. And we're going to be talking about, well, a few topics today, looking at the relationship between sport and big business to assess how the sponsorship market is responding to rapid change in how we watch and engage with sport. And we've got two people who have been thinking about this stuff for a very long time. They work the corridors of power between major sports rights holders and corporate sponsors. We've got Sally Hancock, who is managing partner of Y Sport, non-executive chairman of Women in Sport. I'm old enough to remember you as the chief executive of Red Mandarin. That's correct. Yep, and that was uh, before you were running Lloyd's 2012, London 2012 partnership. So welcome, Sally. And next to her, we have Tim Crow, former CEO of Synergy Sponsorship and a partner of Engine Group. And again, going back, we have in the dim and distant past, the TCCB, mm. which is now no longer... County long, Cricket Board. Teston County <laughs> Cricket Board. Now, of course, the England and Wales Cricket Board. Um, so welcome to you both. I want to start the conversation with women's sport because I've got a feeling that some of the issues that we want to cover... I think women's sport is asking, posing some interesting questions of the sports sector generally. Sally, let's start with you. Um, There's lots of sort of mixed messages. There's good news, some brands coming into the sector, some rights holders who are doing interesting things. Um, But still we see its sponsors are, or sponsorship is at a very low level relative to other sectors now whether that's true or not when you dig into the figures i'm not sure but what's your take generally of the of the women's sports sector yeah i think it's i think we are on an upward trajectory <coughs> excuse me an upward trajectory in the sector i think there's been this realization that um 
women's sport has been underrepresented commercially um, amongst brands. There's somehow been this blinding epiphany amongst brands. They've actually realized that they've actually got female customers. Um, and perhaps uh, women's sport uh, is something that could give them some cut through uh, in a cluttered market. And I'm also seeing as well um, other established sports um, also reconsidering how they, how they position their sport and appeal to their female fans. So, for example, in football, um, football is increasingly recognising that it's just not men that always turn up to a game. And actually, what if we were to start to make a, our, our proposition, our experience more interesting for our female fans and their families, in fact? So starting to see some, some organisations like the Champions League are starting to take that quite seriously. What, is it, what does it mean in terms of, you know, sort of repositioning a sport for a female audience? What does it in, in practice, what can they do? Um, I think what we've what we've seen is just making the the experience in the stadium uh, more more um, more appropriate, the facilities better. Perhaps making a lot of times we're seeing that actually um, men and women want to take their families, and actually that many times that's quite a challenge in in, in venues. Um, we're seeing accessibility, pricing of tickets, availability of information, the, 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 the hospitality offer, all of those things are sort of adapting now to, to recognise that um, it's not just men in flat caps and pints anymore. I think we've grown past that many, many years ago, but the sector's still catching up somewhat, I think, from time to time. I don't know what you think, Tim. I mean, is that your men experience? Men in flat caps and pints. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Not, to, not speaking personally, <laughs> clearly. You get a few of those in Halifax. That's what it is. Speaking as someone who walked in wearing a flat cap. Yeah. Uh, but from your point of pint, view... The pint, the pint, the baby later. Um, from the point of view of the sort of events that you, you witness and see, you seeing that? Yeah, look, I, th I think it was... I mean, if you look back at... We were talking before we got on air about London 2012, and there were a couple of... You know, if you want to talk about kind of big legacies from London 2012, there were two in particular that stood out. One was actually the Paralympics, kind of really yeah, yeah. Mm. Know, went to a whole different level, and um, and actually is on a is on a great trajectory. And funny enough, um, I mean, when you talk to, I spent a bit of time um, talking to sort of Silicon Valley types, and when you talk to them about sports and events that interest them. Paralympics is always one that crops up because they're interested in the idea of augmented athletes. You know, because they look at a lot of things as, you know, kind of an engineering problem. So the Olympics doesn't... They see the Olympics as kind of quite old school. You know, not a lot you can do with that, really. Um, unless you're talking about in media terms, there's a lot you could do with it. Paralympics, you know, kind of very interesting. But the other big legacy, apart from the Paralympics going to a different level, was really women and women's sport generally. Mm -hmm. you know, and it kind of... St it actually started a bit before the Olympics. So there were sort of two kind of key moments. The first was, of course, the BBC famously didn't have any women on the sports personality list and were completely pilloried and rightly pilloried for it. And then, of course, Jess Ennis became, you know, the poster girl for the Games and, and, and GB's women did yeah. brilliantly. And that created a lot of momentum, I think, that, that women's football kind of picked up on and, and you can still see now. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, as Sal says, it's definitely on an upward trajectory. I think the the, the tough bit really is it's still, you know, I mean, when I was in my sort of last few years at Synergy, we had a lot of interest from brands about women's sport, but it's kind of difficult to make a case for it 
puts in black and white. You know, there's always a bit of a leap of faith. And I think that's one area where it needs help. I mean, I was asked to appear as a kind of expert witness before the um, cross-parliamentary group on women's sport. And they asked me, you know, kind of what's, what's one thing that we could do to help? And I said, well, one big thing, actually, is you could kind of offer tax relief for brands who, who sponsor it, because it is that leap of faith. But if you did that, that would definitely make a difference. And I think there's definitely scope for that. Of course, they didn't do anything about that. They completely ignored what I said, and, you know, there you go. But um, uh, it needs, it needs, uh, it obviously needs media coverage, and that's that's happening. I was great. It was great to see there was a really good piece by The Guardian not very long ago, which was kind of a manifesto about why they were going to double down on women's sport, and I think more of that is great. And there's no doubt that, you know, commercially it can be very effective, and, and Sal and I worked together on the... Um, SSE uh, sponsorship of the uh, Women's FA Cup, and that's uh, that's been very effective, both for SSE and for the competition. I mean, it's taken the competition to a completely different level. Just the simple fact of moving it into Wembley, you know, it went from, you know, being watched by a few thousand people to you know thirty five, forty thousand people, and the media coverage as well grew because both the FA and SSE and, and, and Synergy really bore down on that. So I think it's a good case study of what can it be It is, achieved. and I, th I think the, the interest, couple of interesting dimensions to that was that when, when we were working with SSE, exploring the opportunity, which we were doing together, it, you know, SSE at the time had no, no female board members, um, had a, a customer base that in, in which probably the majority of decisions around which choice of energy provider you went to was being made by women, all of their sponsorship activity in sport was ma male-oriented. They'd just come out of the Glasgow 2014 Commonwealth Games. And this, for them, helped, was, a, was a moment where they really were, were saying, we're going to hold ourselves to account. We've got to change. You know, we really have. And what we loved about the SSE deal that we did was not just was it a partnership with the FA Cup itself, but a commitment to growing the game and commitment to increasing and providing more opportunities to play football because we, we were able to evidence that there was a huge unmet demand. So many girls that wanted to play but had no means to do so. And that's still the case across many sports in different parts of the country. So for brands, considering at one level how to, to support the elite of the game and the coverage and the visibility and everything else from it, but then thinking, you know, you can really make a difference if you invest in the base of the pyramid as well. Which um, person at SSE made the decision to sponsor that particular event, just out of interest? The corporate affairs director, predominantly. Interesting. He, he was the one that, that felt, felt this most keenly. That he felt, and and he was the one as well. That when the board were, were universal in this, in support of this, by the way, but equally had had committed themselves to a, a very clear agenda for diverse for their own diversity as an organisation. And this was this was, as I say, they uh, would would be one means by which they would truly hold themselves to account. And can you give another example of a a brand really investing in women's sport? Um, one that I love, and it's a little bit tangential. Um, is little, and uh, we've probably seen the, the case study. It's uh, as I say, it's um, little in in Ireland and their support for Gaelic football. Um, I just did the whole the whole strategy, the whole way they've activated it. It's been quite disruptive. We'll probably use that word a few yeah. times. Yeah. Um, launched it initially. I mean, it was it, it, just the whole thing has been fantastic, and I, I would urge um, anyone listening to to dig out the film on it because it's gritty and it's earthy and it's 
passionate and it shows the very best of this phenomenal sport. Um, and Lidl have really taken it all the way through the line. And I, th I, th I suspect that we'll see down the track that there'll be more, more activity by Lidl. They, they, they know now how to be a great sponsor. They've experienced, obviously, in other, other tournaments, but other competitions. But I think that we might see more from them in this vein. I think the other one worth calling out, actually, which you could argue sort of started it, really, as a, certainly as a creative idea, was um, Procter & Gamble and proud sponsor of, of Marm. Um, <coughs> and that was an interesting case study because um, when, when did that that was did that start 2010 or was it or 20 well actually they so it, it, it actually started um, uh, they uh, they were looking uh, it started in, in the states and they were looking at NFL you know which of course is a titan in the states um, <coughs> it's dominance in the market the only place I've ever seen where, where something is as dominant is cricket in India you know NFL, I mean, kind of, you know, the top 100 sports telecasts every year, 97 or something are NFL. You know, it's crazy. But they looked at NFL and thought, okay, so let's just have a look at NFL because we're, we're not involved. Um, and maybe there's a route in, you know. And, and it was just a very simple piece of planning, actually. So I think 66% of NFL fans um, are men, but 33% are women. And that's a pretty big number, it is. you know. So mm. they thought, right, okay. And they did a deal. The, the basic idea of the deal really was kind of create NFL theatre in store. So that, you know, and they, and they had about, I think it was about 20 products that became NFL products. And it, and it went real really well. And then they thought, okay, so what else is there? And they, the next thing they looked at actually was the Olympics. And, um, you know, with the Olympics, obviously it's, it's a, step up again because the audience is kind of 50 50 uh you know on average so they did a deal with um i think the u.s olympic committee and i think they did a deal up in canada as well and again that worked really well and they had this great creative um platform and what was interesting about that was actually firstly it opened up completely white space you know no one had ever done anything like it before the other thing that was just a simple truth is that if when you looked at most Olympic work and, um, you know, without being at all disrespectful, the Olympics is not a place for extreme marketing innovation generally. Um, but when you look at a lot of the ads, certainly before that time, despite the fact the audience was 50-50 male-female, the way the ads, they were talking to it as though the audience was sort of 100% male or at least majority male. And they completely flipped that on its head. And I think that was a big breakthrough moment for kind of the marketing kind of ecosystem, you know, because here's Procter & Gamble doing this. You know, I think that gave a lot of brands permission to think in a different way about the relationship between women and sport, which is kind of just as important as women's sport, because that actually is a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting you, you said about the guy at um, the, in corporate affairs who was the sort of driver of that decision. I mean, every big sponsorship presumably needs a champion on the brand side. They need someone to grab it yeah. and drive it. Yeah, absolutely. Is yeah. that, and I'm making a very probably simplistic analogy in terms of the number of women on boards who can have the power, corporate power to drive those mm. things and what we, in terms of what brands sponsor. Do you think there is a relationship between those? No. I don't actually necessarily. I just because <coughs> I think I think we we we're 
evolution has kicked in slightly and we are starting to realize that there's great value in um, in brands engaging more with um, with female sports and also brands for whom typically have not considered the sector like Avon Cosmetics with its deal with Liverpool for yeah. example Liverpool women great and very different and you kind of think well, okay well there where's that going to go um, when wonder where they'll they'll go with that over the next five years perhaps so I'm not sure there's a correlation necessarily but equally I suspect, I mean, good grief, even when Tim and I started in this world years ago, we used to talk then of the, then of the chairman's whim, and frankly, that hasn't really gone away that much. Um, but I'd like to hope it's, it's evolving. I'm, always, I'm, ne- I'm never quite sure about the chairman's whim. I love the chairman's whim story, but it's sort of the line between the chairman's whim and the sort of support from the top table of decision makers within a large... Is, is There's plenty of case studies of very rich chairman of major organisations pandering to their own interests and sponsoring sailing, for example, <laughs> with their very big boats. Um, <clears throat> I think it's getting less and less. Uh, you know, sponsorship is having to prove its worth. Well, it, this, it comes has on to prove itself. this comes on to the crucial point, yeah. which is how do you prove the ROI, which presumably is what brands are demanding now from their tie-ups with any sort of sport, right? They want to know exactly what the return is on that investment, rather than just the whim of the chairman or his wife. Yes, I think I think that's true, but I think equally um, adventurous sponsors are sometimes taking a plunge and realize because there are some times when you just don't know, and and it's predicated on your own co- commitment and investment to get behind this. You might to you know where could we ultimately end up with this if we really did it properly? If we sit back as brands and we expect the properties and sports to do all the work, which still happens from time to time, then clearly we're not going to get the return that we might expect. So we as agencies still, ha- still have to work, I think, quite hard to persuade um, some brands and some sectors to invest and properly activate and do it well and make it intrinsically woven into the, the, the brand story over, over time. Um, those things are still, I think, critical. I have a bit of a problem with the whole chairman's whim thing, actually, um, for, for a few reasons. Firstly, um, I think it's kind of unfair that it's... it's just sort of ever mentioned in relation to sponsorship. I mean, I've seen a few, quite a few whimsical decisions made in <laughs> other marketing <laughs> disciplines uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And secondly, there's this kind of notion that when a guy gets the top, because we're not really talking about the chairman, we're talking about the CEO, that somehow they sort of stop making decisions. Um, you know, and, and yes, that we can see there's plenty of um, examples of um, people indulging in their own passion, but I can equally think of a lot of... Um, decisions that were made by people at the top um, that turned out to be very inspired. I do think, I, you know, I, ac- I accept the point, but I do think it needs a little bit of um, a caveat when it's uh, applied just to sponsorship, as I say, because <laughs> of um, the just, idea that the only whimsical decisions happen in relation to marketing spend apply only in sponsorship seems to me uh, to have the intellectual rigour of a Katie Hopkins column. <laughs> but that's a classic example of brand building, you know, big, risky brand building. But doesn't the advent of social media and influencers change that a bit? Do you not need a slightly different approach to... Well, I think we're seeing... We're at a kind of a tipping point because, you know, a lot of the, the kind of the, the sort of infrastructure around rights and sponsorship was sort of invented in the 20th century and it, it was invented in response to a very different media market 
and you know we've now got like it or not sport is and, and consumers relationship with sport is going to be defined by a new set of media titans whose relationship with sport is completely different to what we were before and by a consumer who steadfastly <laughs> refuses to consume sports in the way that a lot of Sports rights owners would like or, them or can't to, afford and to, indeed broadcasters would like them. Or can't to. afford to consume sport in the way that they'd like to. Yeah, consume. yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I think that that sort of fundamentally is the thing that's driving the change. It's not. I mean, social media is one aspect of it, but it's really a kind of seismic change that. And, and are you talking about the Amazons and the, the these new entrants into? The yes. Well, there's always uh, when, whenever there's a Premier League uh, rights auction coming up, there's always somebody who's mentioned in dispatches. They're brilliant at um, orchestrating that. And Amazon uh, is is this this cycles. Uh, what was it last time? Be in Sport was it? I think they were supposed to be the ones. Who were Satanta. Satanta. Yeah. ITV Digital. They were all coming with large <laughs> large checks. And I, and, I d- and I think there's no doubt those guys are going to take a look. But um, my personal view is that they they won't be heavily involved this time, probably the one after that. And in any case, I think they're probably eyeing much more the NFL rights auction in 21. That's the, that, I think, is the big one. That's the one I think where we'll see significant change. I hope you're enjoying this episode of The Line. If you'd like to be involved in future episodes, either as a guest or as a sponsor, then drop me a line on danny.rogers at haymarket.com or look on the PR Week website for details significant change in sponsorship is often you know in that environment where everything is we're, we're seeing things i guess this is a sort of media um dispersal type argument but the argument for sponsorship was always that it's almost like an ad you can't avoid you're in you know you're on the pitch you're on the shirt no amount of sky plusing and and second screening can get you get beyond you is that is that an argument that is still valid do you think is it growing in importance in terms of is that why sponsorship remains a, a you know a solid marketing investment I think it's certainly true that's still the case for certain sectors mm-hmm. so if you look at brands who have a low degree of where awareness in particular and emotion um, and often a part of a larger story so if you look at want of a better word, sort of nation brands, Emirates, Etihad, etc. That's definitely a, a factor. Um, and if you look at gambling and football, and it's impossible not to look at football without look at gambling, yeah. um, that's also, also a factor. Um, uh, you know, it, there are a, a still a very wide range of motives doing sponsorship and that sort of oldest one is is still there but a lot of people have moved on from that and um, particularly brands who do not need awareness that's not why they're buying it they're buying it if they're buying it at all for different reasons and I think this says something as well because you've hit on two very specific sort of categories there and I I mean We've been saying this for a while, but I still I think it's ever more important. This this notion of when you know one of the decisions you take when you're considering becoming a sponsor is the company you. Can- Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, who are you alongside in this particular initiative? What, who are you surrounded by? And I hear of brands who, who look at certain sports and think well, I, I can see that these Chinese brands are investing. All they're simply doing is buying that space on that shirt, those boards. They will do nothing for it whatsoever. Look at those gambling brands coming into this as well. And actually, that is not where I see myself. <clears throat> that is not where I'm go- I want my brand to be positioned. So I need to step back and look at it in a different way and either consider a different approach to that sport or, take my, take, or, or be prepared to take myself elsewhere. I think it's quite. I th- I think that's becoming quite an issue personally. In football, predominantly yes. Yeah. Which is why, again, not wishing to to come back away to to women's sport, but which is why it's now quite interesting that UEFA are recognising, for example, that um, it is going. It's stripped its rights now for for the women's game away from the men's game, Champions League rights and European Championships rights, and they will be sold separately, which gives. Um, which gives the opportunity for, again, a new family of brands to come together and actually do some really good stuff, potentially, for the sport. That's interesting. How many is that? They must be one of the first. FIFA don't do that, do they? Uh, I think Not yet. Uh-huh. Okay. Not yet, but it's under, I mean, it's under consideration because, as evidenced by the FIFA World Cup in Canada last, last time around, you know, there was next to no activation. There's a bit. Um, but predominantly, those rights were bundled in with the men's rights, and the majority of sponsors did very little. Coke were great. Coke, Coke did some good stuff, but not much beyond that in Canada. Can I ask a little bit about um, getting women involved in sport? Some of the greatest campaigns in recent years in, uh, in our industry have been about um, female self-esteem. I'm thinking uh, like a girl. Um, I'm thinking... Dove's campaign for real beauty, this girl can. Um, Are they working? Tim talked earlier about um, London 2012 getting women involved in sport. But have these campaigns that have sprung off that actually achieved their ends, do you think? I think it's it's a slow burn, but it's it's interesting. I think, uh, and I I think it's partly dependent on the, the, the... the age group partly that you're targeting in those campaigns. So for, for younger girls, they're starting to be quite inspired by some of these new campaigns that are coming through. They see the, the people they follow, they follow on Instagram, they, they, they pick this stuff up through Instagram and Snapchat and others, and they're going, okay, that's curious. If it's cool for her, it might be cool for me. This girl can, for example, as a, as a slight antithesis for that, was, was almost the, the, um, the reverse. You know, it, it, it was a ca- it's a campaign created by Sport England. It's taken on an almost life of its own. It's, there is very little funding going into it, the campaign now. And uh, one of the challenges for this girl can, which genuinely has got 
nearly two million more women moving more often than they were before is in the absence of, uh, or in the near future, the absence of government funding to go into it is how they commercialise it. And how do you do that, retaining the integrity of it? And that's a project we're working on at the moment. But it's that, that could see some very unusual brands and, and, bit, and sectors coming into it, should I say. Is that a bit like Change for Life, where the government has done a private partnership with brands to get people more active? Um, no, it's, it's more the recognition that government funding into those kind of initiatives will slow down. So Sport England, if it wants to keep this initiative live and, and effective, and it, let's hope it does because it's been great, uh, is going to need to diversify its income, as, as, you know, as often is the case. So we might, we might see a couple of, of very, very new players in the sector, I think, down the path. The Line is sponsored by Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency. Right, let's move on to, we, we've talked about major events um, as part of that conversation. Interesting, Tim Crow, we have a, a moment here, we're, we're just about to find out over the next few weeks where the 2023 Rugby World Cup is going to end up. The World Rugby Association have come out in favour of, the, the technical bid is South Africa. Yes, they've scored highest. What does that mean? Um... Well, like all these things, there's sort of, you know, scoring criteria for the bidders. No no self-respecting bidding process doesn't have one of those. And it was a surprise to many, me included, I have to say. Um, you should say it's Ireland, France, it's Ireland, and France South Africa. and South Africa competing for the right to stage the 2023 um, Rugby World Cup. Um, they are the last men standing. There are a few others who are in the mix of states, for example, in there and pulled out. Um, but yes, yeah, so South Africa came out on top, which actually doesn't mean that they will necessarily get it because there's still a vote. And if you get 39 rugby officials in a room, then uh, nothing is predictable. Um, but it was, yeah, it was kind of quite interesting. I um, uh, Now that I have the time, I took the time to uh, read the technical report. Uh, there were a couple of things that, that were kind of interesting. The first was... Um, Kind of counterintuitively, they, the, the, the report said that uh, a weakness, a significant weakness of the French bid was that they were staging the Olympics uh, in 24, and therefore, you know, that presented a big commercial risk. Um, and so, a couple of things on that. The first is when the French commercial projections came out, um, let's say there was a degree of invention in there that a lot of people kind of optimistic projections. But the other was, of course, that in 2019, there will be a Rugby World Cup in Japan, followed by a, an Olympics in Tokyo the year after. So that sort of kind of counterintuitive. And then the other thing was that the Irish bid was sort of marked down. Um, uh, and one of the reasons it was marked down was where you don't have enough experience of staging major events. So it goes back to that old thing. I think it was Clint Eastwood said in one of the one of the sort of spaghetti westerns, how's a man going to go to experience unless you give him some? So, uh, so yes, there we are. So that's what I spent my morning doing uh, and, then, uh, and then tweeting <laughs> well, that about it. That wasn't a bad Clint Eastwood impression. <laughs> <laughs> so, Japan, I mean, is the argument then that the, the sort of commercial sector, there is a fatigue if you have 
two major events within two years. Is that what they're saying about France? And, and But the argument in favour of Japan was that actually we're going to now, you know, big sport is going mm. on a sort of Asian swing, wasn't it? That was always yeah, the Yeah, the Japan decision, to be fair to World Rugby, the, the, the decision to take it to Japan was made a long way out. I think it was made in like 09 or 10, and they, and they actually awarded 15 to England and, and 19 to Japan in the same way, setting a trend, in fact, for uh, all future uh, bid awards. Um, but yeah, there, there is that presumption, which I find slightly, I, I don't agree with it. Um, one, France is a massive, massive economy. And actually there's an argument that says, um, you know, if someone's shut out of the Olympics in a category, then it's much more likely that um, brands will look to get involved in, in Rugby World Cup, uh, kind of like an ambush campaign, if you like. But, and I think the other one then is actually rugby's massive in France. You know, I mean, it, it's just a huge, huge sport now has been for a while, but it, it went to a completely you know, different level. Sport generally in France went to a different level after the 98 World Cup. You know, Sport wasn't really written about or talked about. It was kind of unfashionable to even talk about sport in, in France prior to the 98 World Cup. You know, smoking was kind of um, obligatory. <laughs> <Still passed on>. uh, <laughs> and sport was very, very much secondary, you know. This girl and smokes. And <laughs> yeah, this girl smokes. And... Um, you know, but it's it's gone to a different level. So I kind of I sort of reject that notion that I, I think actually, if anything, I think the Olympics is kind of a halo. Um, as far as Ireland is concerned, I, I I think they missed a trick um, when it came to sort of the the hook around the beard. I mean, they talked about will this will help us sell rugby to the Irish diaspora in the US, which I thought was a bit whimsical, rather than mm. actually to me the kind of point of it was. The island of Ireland coming together, GAA and rugby coming together, um, you know, as well as, of course, it would be the most incredible crack of all time. I thought they missed a trick there with that. Um, but like I say, I mean, the, 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 the jury's out, but, you know, no decision has been made, so who knows who's going to get it. And I personally, I think a big subtext for the South Africans thing actually is is defending rugby in one of its core constituencies, which is happens to be on its knees um, and that may or may not be the right thing to do but yeah the technical report I commend it to you if you have uh, if yeah you well have, you have three days free <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's that idea so Sally when we when we talked about London 2012 and we've had you know the, at the beginning of the decade it was the golden era of sport we had London 2012 we had the rugby world cup in 2015 and again there was an idea that these big events were going to sort of educate big brands into sport and encourage mm. them in. Do you think that that has happened? Do you think that, that was there any commercial legacy of London 2012 that you can sort of... That's a really perceive? good question. Take, to revert, turning the question slightly on its head, what I'm quite interested in seeing at the moment is um, is, is the kind of the, the arrival on the market of completely new formats of sport. Mm. So, for example, the recent event at the O2, which brought together basketball and netball, for example. I was luck lucky enough to go to the six-day... Um, cycling event over at the velodrome last week and again a completely new format that was bringing sort of music and sport together and i looked around and i thought of all the there's lots of plenty of partners looked around thought 
I don't think I've ever seen any of these brands sponsor anything before, like Volterol. I mean, I'd never seen Volterol in a sort of major sporting event before, but suddenly these, these are brands going, this is different. We're reaching consumers in a different way. This is a sports event that's perhaps appealing to a different sector of the public, and this is an opening for us. So I think, I think that, that it, I'm, I'm really interested to see how that innovation in, sport, in sporting product and in, therefore, the, the brands that come into it is starting to evolve. Um, do they, do we tend, we still, excuse sorry. me, sorry. There you go. I was going to ask whether you, those sorts of events, do you need television anymore? That always used to be the, yeah, really that's the business model. So you had a broadcast and you had a sort of linear broadcast with, a, with sponsors and that was the, the commercial model. But now that doesn't seem to... Yeah, matter. I'm sure the price. No, is I think that's. I think that's. Well, I think certainly the, the. Well, the pricing model probably adjusts for that. But, um, it, you know, it. Uh, it is. It's. N- it's new ways of describing that content. New ways of cascading that content. We're less reliant on the kind of typical national broadcasters to to provide us with that reach. So, um, yeah, interesting. Of course, brands can create events now, can't they? And then Precisely. use their own media or use yeah. social media to build a community of people, get them along and so on. You don't need the, the old bought media. You're, you're less reliant on the traditional rights holders, that's for sure. Um, and though they, 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 and rights holders are needing to innovate to stay fresh and, you know, and keep up, basically. And think about, as I said before, just select the right partners that are going to be the right brand fit for your product, not just because it's the biggest check. And still, we find that happens. So, are there examples of brands in women's sport that have gone in from that angle, that have created sort of grassroots type events without going through the traditional media? Gosh, there's a question. Um, my interestingly, when I when I first started in the, the world of sponsorship many 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 years ago. My default position, um, if if ever asked by a brand to you know for something that would be a, a appealing to, to women, the absolute only default to go to was the Tesco's Race for Life. That was it, <laughs> you know, because there was nothing else that that had that kind of, and it was absolutely millions that you know that took took part then and still do, and it's still a great event. Swimming as well used to crop up. Oh yes, swimming. Yes, of course. Swimming used to crop up occasionally, but mm. very, very difficult to see how that you know, m- make that necessarily. But now you've got work. park run, and, and now we're starting to see those, 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 you know, those new events coming through, and I, I'm fascinated by those. Um, and you know, one of the one of the ones I, I respect the most recently is Invictus Games, and how that's come about, and how that's really landed, albeit with royal support for s- and so forth, but. You know the, the partnerships that they've had with Jaguar Land Rover and others with that. You know, just it's just different. It's starting to to, to just be a little bit more disruptive again. Do moving us that, away. Um, talking of back in the day, remember that brief we said back in the the Unilever stuff, and it was target women. And one of the we called some agencies in to respond. And what I think right. the the uh, the response was delivering flowers, wasn't it? Sponsor the delivery of flowers. <laughs> What, in the match <laughs> to the printers? No, just, just generally. Judging. And it was kind of, oh, that's kind of quite innovative because it, so it wasn't sport. Yeah. Remember that? I you do. don't remember that. I do, do remember? I do, because I, I equally at the same time we were working with Purcell. And uh, um, Purcell had, uh, had been, again, quite interested to think about sponsorship as a, as a means to market. <coughs> and rather than jumping to the usual conclusions or going, have a chat with Race for Life again. We <laughs> um, took the you know the groundbreaking idea of actually going and asking their customers what they might like, and mm. it was um, it was intriguing. So rather than the, the 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 answer was well actually I don't want you to do anything for me 
I really don't want you to do anything for me at all. I want you to do something for my kids. And if you can't do something for my kids, then do something for the community in which they sit. And out of that came this new initiative with British Gymnastics called Purcell Funfit, mm. which um, was, I mean, and now it seems like the most, you know, with as many examples of it since, but it was quite brown, groundbreaking at the time. And the idea of a brand coming in and actually funding and really supporting getting kids healthy and engaged and doing stuff and, and being rewarded for it. You know, the, 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 the effect that had on, on women who were aware of that partnership was phenomenal. So, yeah, was proud of that one. A long time ago, but still still think of that as, as you know, um, one of the first times that we actually went a bit off in a different direction in the way that we approached women through this sector. And what year was that? Um, gosh, 1983? Long while ago, I think. Definitely one of the trends that I think you're going to see more and more of is, is the creation of new formats and yes. new events, whether whether by brands or by rights. It's actually easier for brands because they don't have to worry about, you know, rules and regulations. You know, so the Nike sub two thing was you know, a really good example. And they can own the data, right? They can own the customer. Yeah. Own the data. I mean it's easier for Nike because they're only athletes and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, but I think that's one of the real problems for sport right now. Because sports a lot of sports it's kind of it's quite interesting when you kind of go down the list of major sports, how many are facing some sort of existential crisis. And actually formats is one of the, one of the answers, which is, which is kind of interesting, you know, because they're all shorter formats, which tends to suggest that they think they're aiming at the young who's, and, and that therefore there is no attention span, which is not true at all. There's anybody who's got kids who are into esports know they will spend hours with the right thing if it grabs their attention they will they will watch it but i think there's something other interesting on the other side of that coin which is also facing all of sport generally which is purpose beyond profit now yeah. it does amuse me when i read particularly certain sorts of ad men of a certain sort of age saying that you know there is no such thing as millennials and they're not a tribe and this is ridiculous. Which is not true. I mean, you know, this, this sort of generation, whether you're talking about 12 to 30, they are the most ethical generation of all time. And I think one of sport's biggest problems, and this certainly plays out with brands because they're thinking about the same thing, is what is sport's purpose beyond profit? You know, does it have one? Um, and something I always talk about is I can't count the number of times I've seen that Nelson Mandela quote go up at <laughs> presentations. You know, sport has the unique power to you know, unite the world. And sport's very good at talking about that, but it's not very really good at doing anything about it. But actually, I think there's you know, limitless potential in this area. So I wrote a piece of a campaign not that long ago talking about it was actually about the legacies of London 2012. And and going back to that for a minute, actually one of the interesting legacies of London 2012 when it comes from brands being involved in sport is most of the brands who were involved with London 2012 in the UK are no longer involved in sport. And, and that's actually, that's partly a function of the fact that when you get involved in the games, you're getting involved in the games and it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting involved in sport because, you know, building a games is a giant infrastructural exercise. But, but going back to that purpose beyond profit thing, one of the things I mentioned that article is let's just say for example cricket has a massive existential problem right now because it's got this relatively new thing called 2020 
which is extremely popular, but 2020 is eating everything else alive, including test cricket. And mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, what do you do? Are you, are you about one brand or are you about many brands? And funny enough, going back to my days at the, the Test and County Cricket Board, we had exactly the same discussion about test cricket versus one day cricket, etc. But if you go back to cricket and purpose beyond profit, wouldn't it be interesting if cricket said, as a global sport, we are going to, in terms of you know, purpose beyond profit, dedicate ourselves to helping to solve the world's kind of biggest, arguably, problem right now, which is the gap between Islam and the rest of the world, which cricket is uniquely qualified to do. Imagine if cricket suddenly did that, how it would be reappraised and, th and, and that became its purpose beyond profit. Wouldn't that be interesting? If you go through a, a, an awful lot of sports and think about the power that they have to do something like that, it'd be really interesting. And I think that's something that is massive potentially. Mm -hmm. Could be that brands are the vehicles for sport to be able to change. Because if you go to something like the Cannes Advertising Festival, most of the winning campaigns now mm. are brands running purpose-driven mm. uh, work. And um, if the sporting bodies could learn from those brands or work with those brands, yeah, they could achieve... Well, I tell you what, a lot of brands who aren't currently looking at a lot of sports would suddenly pay attention. Because certainly in my experience, one of the... You know, and this goes back to the thing about rights that and, and packages that were sort of created in the 20th century haven't really been updated. But one of the biggest issues, and it's, I just repeat it over and over again when, when rights sellers come talking to me about this stuff, is you know, give some thought to why it is this brand should be interested in what you're selling. And instead of talking about you know, all the stuff that you sell, it's like, well, why should they be interested? Have you... Have you looked at their agenda? You know, have you looked at their, have you read their sort of corporate report? Have you read what the CEO says, what the chairman says? And then say, right, this way. It's amazing how many right sellers still don't do that. The vast majority don't take the time and trouble to do that, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about it. Okay, right, I think we're pretty much there. Thank you very much to Sally Hancock, Tim Crow. Thanks as ever to Danny, and thank you to Lee Sanders, who's been running the editing deck today, as the uh, kids call it, I think, <laughs> I hear. Um, and that's it. So this is a PR Week podcast, collaboration with Cake at HKX Building in St Pancras. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Line is sponsored by Cake, the Havas Sport and Entertainment Agency.